singing kind of their last verse or getting towards the end of the song if you would come on up so we can go through one and get as many songs in tonight i'll be singing 484 you are my all in all 484 you are my all in all you are my strength when
Faithful love flowing down from the Lord God around Makes me whole, saves my soul Washes wider than snow Faithful love comes each year Reaches out for each year Oh, I can, I can Say no, I All right, let's get started, please. If everybody could come on in and have a seat. We'll get started. If you're here tonight and you didn't have the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper uh, this morning, if you'll make your way back to the little chapel, you'll be served at this time. All right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. First and
We want to welcome you to our services tonight. We're glad you're here, uh, especially if you're visiting with us. Thank you for coming our way tonight, and uh, we hope that uh, we'll make you feel welcome and want to come back. Uh, just a couple of updates. Ladies, if you could help with the nursery, please sign the list in the foyer. Also, men, any of our guys that would like to present a four- to five-minute devotional Wednesday night, uh, please sign up as well. That's all the announcements that I have. Uh, will you bow with me in a word of prayer, and then we'll be led in our class to go to a song and to go to our classes by Hayes. All right, bow with me. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the day. Thank you for all that you do for us. We're mindful of those that are sick right now. We've mentioned several today, and they're on our minds and in our hearts, Father, and please bless them as only you can. Father, please be with us in our Bible study tonight. Uh, we focus our attention on your word and try to be better people as a result. Father, thank you so much for all that you do for us. We're especially grateful for your son, Jesus, who gave his life on the cross for our sins, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.
today I will be singing number. Today I'll be singing. I'll fly away, number 851. I'll fly away, 851. Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away to a home on the special shore. I'll fly away. I'll fly away, glory. I'll fly away, morning. Anybody need one, by the way? There's a few. Same one. Once they're gone, they're gone. they're passing those out I want to mention Jim and Janita I know they were gone this afternoon Janita's first cousin what was her name McKeddy McKee McKeg okay all right Mildred McKeg uh, passed away and they've been up in what about in Tennessee was it Linden, Tennessee. So they just got back. I know they're wore out, but uh, we express our sympathy to that family. And let's, of course, keep in mind those that we mentioned this morning uh, that are sick. We need to uh, keep them in our prayers. Can y'all hear me okay? I'm using this shirt mic or suit mic right here. I'm putting it on here. So, All right, last week we began, and we didn't get near as far as I wanted to get last week on uh, the importance of establishing proper biblical authority. Uh, it's very important that we talk about these things before we get into the specifics that hopefully uh, we will begin talking about next week. I hope next week, Lord willing, to start out with the Lord's Supper. And we're going to talk about various aspects of the Lord's Supper, why we do what we do, and uh, the biblical authority uh, behind what we do. So I hope that You'll be looking forward to that. But we emphasized last week about the importance of establishing biblical authority. And uh, the first thing we mentioned, just to kind of rehearse, is that everything that we do must be done in the name of and by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about how we need to walk by faith and not by sight. And so everything that we do must be done in the name of the Lord. And then we talked about how that obviously uh, all commands and examples in the Bible do not apply to us today. And uh, we went to the Old Testament and uh, we talked about some of those examples. We also went to the New Testament and we mentioned some of those commands that simply do not apply uh, to us today. And then uh, last week when we dismissed, we began talking about how that 
there are some distinctions that need to be made if we're going to properly establish Bible authority. If we're going to rightly divide the word of truth, we need to be able to use some common sense, basic Bible knowledge, and, and good judgment about these subjects in order to properly establish Bible authority. And we talked about last week how we need to distinguish, first of all, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think we covered that fairly well. And then we talked about how we need to distinguish between matters of faith and matters of opinion. And we used the example of Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. We also emphasized uh, John Mark's example in Acts chapter 13, how that uh, Paul and Barnabas parted company over a matter of opinion. Everything ultimately worked out well. And then as we dismissed, I ask you to consider some things uh, regarding uh, distinguishing between those things that are temporary and those things that are permanent. And uh, you'll recall when the Lord's church began, uh, we did not have the New Testament uh, as we have it today. The New Testament was not yet in complete written form. In John the 15th chapter, I should say the 16th chapter, verse 13, Jesus told his apostles that he's going to leave them, but when he leaves, he's going to send somebody to them. Who's that? The Comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and what's he going to do? He's going to guide you into all truth. If I have a glass of water up here and I drink all of it, how much is left? None, right? So the Holy Spirit's going to guide these apostles into all truth. That means there's not going to be any more revelation. Anybody today that says they're getting revelation from God doesn't understand that passage. They don't understand what it means. The apostles are going to get all, all revelation. I'm going to guide you into all truth. Not only that, I'm going to bring all things to your remembrance. You're going to be able to remember everything that I was able to teach you while I was here upon this earth. And, uh, of course, uh, they were to go to Jerusalem. They were to tarry there until they were endued with power from on high. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, we read about the many spiritual gifts there, the tongues and the miracles that they were to have. And what was the purpose of these miracles? Well, if you turn over to Mark chapter 16, somebody turn over there real quick. I, don't, I shouldn't do this tonight, but I'm going to. Turn over to Mark chapter 16, if you will. Mark chapter 16. I haven't got uh, Rick to read for me tonight, but I'm just going to quickly refer to some of these passages here, if I can get there. Mark chapter 16. Now, what I want you to do here, this is when the Great Commission uh, is given. And uh, if you look at verse 16, for example, you're familiar with it. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. And what happens? He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who believes not shall be condemned. Now, you ought to mark this beginning in verse 17. This is so simple when you talk to somebody who still believes in the miraculous. The Bible says in verse 17, these signs will accompany them that believe. Now, notice what these signs are. These are going to accompany them that believe. What? Well, in my name shall they cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt him. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, it's not over yet. Look at verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, sat down on the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message. How? By these signs. What was the purpose of these signs and miracles? To confirm the word. 
to confirm the word. That was the reason these miraculous gifts existed. You know, if I'm one of the first century apostles or teachers and I come to a community and I'm going to try to teach you what God says, how am I going to prove or verify that what I say is true? Are you just going to take my word for it? No, I'll be able to prove that what I'm saying is from God by the miraculous signs. And as I said last week, that was the scaffolding of the early church, the scaffolding, if you please, until we got the full and complete revelation. Now, so the purpose of these miracles was to confirm the word. Now, mark your Bibles or turn over to Hebrews, if you will. Hebrews, huh? All right, Hebrews chapter two. Let me just drop down. Uh, well, let's just read beginning in verse uh, in the first part of that. Therefore, we ought to give them earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, which, and the ESV says here, which was declared at the first by the Lord and was attested to us by those that heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. In other words, it was to confirm the word. And so... The word has been confirmed, and we know that it's been confirmed even today. And uh, therefore, uh, since the word has been confirmed, do we need the miracles anymore? No, we don't need the miracles anymore. And so uh, Hebrews 2 and 3 tells us that that's what these miracles were for, and that was done. Now, we read in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 10... You know, that great chapter on love, we think, but <clears throat> Paul's talking about the miracles too. He said in, there, but when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. But, yeah, that's right. All right, verses eight and nine tell us what these parts were. We prophesy in part, we do all these things in part, but that which is perfect is come, and what is that? All right, a lot of people think that's Jesus Christ, but that doesn't fit there, all right? What does the Bible say in James? The law of the Lord is perfect. It's that which is perfect. So we need to understand that when that which is perfect is come, when we have the complete revealed will of God, the miraculous will be done away. Now, here's also something important to note on this. From Acts chapter 8, verses 15 through 17, or 5 through 17, we learn beyond any doubt that only the apostles could impart the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. Only the apostles had that power. Only the apostles could give the gift of the miraculous to somebody else. They were the only ones. And so when the last apostle died and when the last person on whom they laid their hands died, what happened to miracles? They're gone. They're gone. Only the apostles could lay on hands and impart the Holy Spirit, according to Acts chapter 8. And so spiritual gifts ceased. Now we have the word of God. We can confirm what God wants us to do through that word. And so for us to establish Bible authority, we've got to be able to distinguish between things temporary and things that are permanent. Now quickly, also to establish Bible authority, we must be able to distinguish between circumstances that just happen to be there and actual conditions for one's salvation. Now, if you look at Acts chapter 16, verses 12 through 15, we read about Lydia and how she obeyed the gospel. We read about Paul going there on the Sabbath day by the river and, you know, it was probably a beautiful place there and uh, they were, some women assembled there in prayer and everything that I've mentioned about this is strictly circumstances 
surrounding her conversion. The fact that they were meeting by the river, the gathering of women, the sitting down that's described there, uh, that didn't have one thing at all to do with their salvation, did it? But when the Bible talks about Paul preaching to them and them hearing the word of God and believing it and being baptized, that was the conditions of Lydia's salvation. Same chapter, chapter 16, verses 25 through 34, read about the jailer. Read about a man who had beaten Paul and Silas. They were in prison. Their, their feet were fast in the stocks. We read about them singing praises to God and the prisoners hearing them. And then we read about the earthquake and the foundation of that prison being shaken and the bands and the stocks were loosened. See, all that is simply circumstances surrounding the jailer's conversion. The conditions of his conversion is that when Paul preached, they heard Paul's preaching, they believed it, and they were baptized. So we've got to distinguish between the external circumstances and the actual conditions of one's salvation. And also, we need to be able to distinguish between those things that are actually essential and those things that are merely incidental. Think about Paul's <clears throat> journey to Macedonia over in Acts chapter 16, verses 9 through 12. Paul received a vision, uh, a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Now, Paul realized that he should go to Macedonia. Paul knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that God desired that he go there to preach in verse 11, the Bible says they loosed or they traveled by boat to go to Macedonia. Now, couldn't they just have well gone by land? Wouldn't that have been okay? Yeah. Uh, going by boat is incidental. What was essential was going to Macedonia. How they went there was truly incidental. Or think about the Lord's Supper at Troas in Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 9. The Bible here says they met on the first day of the week to break bread. Uh, Paul preached to them. But this same verse also says that they met in an upper chamber on the third floor with many lights. Now think about that. You see, meeting on the first day of the week, taking the Lord's Supper, Paul preaching to them, that was the essential matter. It's just purely incidental that they happen to be meeting on the third floor. The, the many lights that are mentioned there are simply incidental. They could have just as well met on the first floor or the second floor or with few lights. And so to establish Bible authority, we need to be able to distinguish between the incidental and the essential. While I was preaching? Yeah. Might fall off and break his shoulder, huh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you won't break your neck, would you? I don't think your neck could be broken, could it? All right. Also, to establish Bible authority, we must be able to distinguish between custom and the law of God. And if we're not careful, we can let human custom sometimes keep us from understanding what the Bible has to say. Think about the example of the dress of women in regard to wearing the veil over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Now, uh, we haven't got the time, and it's not my purpose to talk about that verse in detail at all. But Paul is not saying that women are to wear a veil in worship, and everywhere they go and everything that they do, uh, you know, Paul is not saying that women here to wear a veil or we today in public. But the custom was here in Corinth for a woman to go out in public unveiled was to associate herself as being an immoral individual. Now, that's not true today, is it? I don't think it's true today at all. Uh, if a woman wears a veil today, that doesn't mean she's moral. If a woman doesn't wear a veil today, that doesn't mean she's immoral. Uh, to establish Bible authority, we've got to be able to distinguish between what custom is and what the Bible is actually teaching. Now, having said all that, may I point out 
that God has always only accepted that which is authorized. Now, we are familiar, I hope, with Genesis chapter 4, how Cain's worship was not accepted because it was not authorized. Abel's worship was authorized because it was by faith. How do we know that? Hebrews chapter 11 says, by faith, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than did Cain. Now, how could Abel offer a sacrifice by faith? What does Romans 10, 17 say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Obviously, God had made it clear, you know, what was acceptable. And Abel did that by faith. And so God will only accept what is authorized. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we read about Nadab and Abihu and how those men, those priests of God, died because they offered strange fire. They offered fire that God had not authorized. And we emphasized in one of our previous lessons how that they died because they disrespected the holiness and the righteousness of God by doing something that God had said not to do. And yet in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 9, we're warned today about being carried away with strange doctrines. Jim did an excellent job on Wednesday night uh, talking about Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 9, how Paul warned again and again about perverting or changing or distorting and twisting the word of God. We simply cannot do that. So what we need to understand, and it's hard sometimes, we need to realize that both liberalism and antiism are wrong. Antiism seeks to make laws where God did not make laws. Liberalism seeks to disregard the laws that God has made. Liberalism treats matters of faith as if they were matters of opinion. And antiism treats matters of opinion as if they were matters of faith. Antiism seeks to bind where God is loosed. Liberalism seeks to loose where God has bound. And in backing away from antiism, sometimes people wind up over here in liberalism. And sometimes in backing away from liberalism, people wind up in antiism. And so we need to realize the importance of always avoiding the extremes if we're going to properly establish Bible authority. All right, how is Bible authority not established? Quickly. God does not authorize based on my own personal preferences. God does not authorize based upon my opinions. He doesn't authorize based upon my likes or dislikes or what the majority of people might like. Bible authority is not uh, based upon what is acceptable to society and to culture. God does not authorize in that way. It's not established based upon what some well-known preacher may say or what he writes. You know, I love to read about the older preachers, and I respect those that have gone before. But it really doesn't mean much what an older preacher or what some great preacher may have said if you can't back that up according to the Bible, doesn't it? You've got to be able to back up what you teach according to the Bible. And just because some well-known person had a certain view or said something, that does not in and of itself automatically make it right. And also Bible authority is not established based upon our traditions. It's not necessarily established on the way that we've always done things. Well, how is Bible authority established? Let's get some practicalities here. Now, I want to point out briefly that Bible authority may, must take into account the idea of the silence of the scriptures. The Bible authorizes by what it says 
as well as what it does not say. What am I talking about here? Well, think about the book of Hebrews for just a minute. The Hebrews writer made it very plain that Jesus Christ could not be a priest under that Old Testament system in Acts 7 and verse 14. Why? Why couldn't Jesus not be a priest under that Old Testament system? Anybody know? He wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah, right? Well, Hebrews 7 and verse 4 says, For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. In other words, the Bible didn't say a word about priests coming out of Judah. The Bible nowhere said, you know, priests can't come out of Judah. The Bible was very specific in where the Old Testament priesthood was to come from. And because of the silence of the scriptures that the Hebrew writer uses, Jesus Christ could not have been a priest because he was up from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, the Bible is silent in that regard and there's no authority for it. And so Jesus Christ could not have possibly been a priest under the Old Testament because Moses said nothing about priests coming out of any tribe except Levi. It's the silence of the scriptures. The Bible didn't have to say that no priest can come out of Judah. But when the Old Testament emphasized where the priesthood was to come from, that naturally, taking into account the silence of the scriptures, meant that no person from another tribe could be a priest. And we're going to say more in the future about that. All right, any questions about that? I hope I'm not trying. I'm trying to finish this up so we can get on to our issues next week. But uh, Luther mentioned Second Peter three and verse sixteen. People will twist the scriptures, distort the scriptures uh, to their own destruction. All right, but this silence of the scriptures is important because that's been a source of contention in uh, religion for many, many years. You know, people say, well, why can't we use instrumental music in worship? Bible nowhere says you can't use it. But the Bible tells us what to do, and when it tells us what to do, just like this example here of the tribe of Levi, that just means we can't do anything else. We've got to respect the authority of the scriptures. Somebody said one time, well, I wonder why the subject of instrumental music is not dealt with in the book of Acts. Well, they didn't have to deal with it. <laughs> they just naturally uh, knew that they were to sing. That's what God authorized. That's what God wanted. And that's why when you hear the Bible speak of singing, it's spoken of as something that is to be done. And uh, in the way of the church, a cappella, we are to sing as we're being sung to. We're to teach as we're being taught and our singing. And so uh, that's why you really don't see that uh, as an issue, and it wasn't an issue, which we'll talk about later on, for some thousand or so years after uh, Jesus Christ went back to heaven. Well, let's get down to the point itself. Uh, how does the Bible actually establish? How is authority actually established? Bible authority is established by examples that are approved. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25, we read that we are to partake of the Lord's Supper. Acts 20 and verse 7 talks about taking the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. Now, there's no option for us to do anything differently. But Acts 20 and verse 7, by example, also permits us to partake of the Lord's Supper in an upper chamber if we want to, with, uh, on the third floor with many lights. I guess we could do that if we wanted to. It would permit that. Uh, sometimes examples permit us to do something that we may do or must do, and whether an example approves actions that may be done or must be done depends on what the Bible says about that same subject in other places. And so we know that we are authorized to partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. Now, there's some examples in the New Testament that are not approved. Uh, for example, in Matthew 26, Judas betrayed the Lord. We don't follow that example, do we? 
Or uh, Ananias and Sapphira lied to God about their giving in Acts 5. Or John Mark turned back and became unfaithful, went not with them to the work in Acts 13. We don't follow those examples. Instead, we follow approved examples. And also Bible authority is established not only by approved example, but it is established by implication or inference. Now, let me just say right here, what we're talking about is just simple communication. We understand that in English, don't we? You know, well, you know, people understand today whether an example is something you should follow or you shouldn't follow or whether a statement is something you should do or not do. It's just common sense and applying how we communicate with one another. And so there's implication there for us that we must follow. Everything the Bible teaches, it teaches by direct statement or by what's implied by those statements. And what's implied is just as important as what directly stated. For example, uh, I'm convinced that we're authorized to teach that the Apostle Paul repented when he became a Christian. Do you believe that? Did you know you cannot find one verse in all the Bible that says Paul repented? And so we reason. Implication involves reason. What's the reasoning here? Well, nobody can become a Christian without repenting, can they? Jesus said, I tell you no, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Paul became a Christian. Therefore, we know Paul repented because you can't become a Christian unless you do repent. What's implied there is just as important as what is explicitly stated. Uh, or an act, what? That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, yeah, but Bible doesn't say it though, does it? But by implication, I can teach it just like it did, so. Yep, I'm sure he did too. Or in Acts 17, verse 12, we see those Bereans were those who believed in God. Well, that implies they heard the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If they believed, we know they must have heard by implication. And then the Bible authorizes not only by approved example or implication, but it authorizes by direct statement. And I think that's the way that we all really uh, understand. Jesus said in uh, Luke 13, 3, I tell you, no, unless you repent, you'll perish. That's a direct statement. Or in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Jesus said in uh, uh, Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And so we understand those direct statements. But the Bible teaches just as well, just as plainly, just as authoritatively by example and also by implication as it does by direct statement. But then I want to mention this tonight. The Bible also authorizes by expediency just as well as the other things. And I want you to listen very carefully about this point. Expediency always involves human judgment. Now, when God tells us to do something, but he doesn't detail or specify how it's to be done, then expediency or human judgment comes into play. And in all matters regarding the congregational activities of the Lord's church, the elders of the church are the authority when it comes to matters of expediency. In fact, the only area where elders have any authority at all to rule is in matters of judgment or expediency. No elder in the church has the right to change God's word, but elders do have the right, and we must follow their judgments in matters of expediency. For example, they can determine uh, where and what field of work we're going to do our mission work in. That's a judgment call. I may not like it personally. Maybe you don't like it personally. But we are to follow the elders. And if I 
disregard and disrespect the authority of elders. I've disrespected the authority of God, and that's big trouble coming toward me for doing that. I have no right to do that. Uh, they can also determine uh, who the preacher is going to be in this congregation. They determine many other things that have to be made in areas of human judgment. In fact, there are many things that are authorized based upon expediency. For example, we're commanded to worship, but the Lord didn't say where to worship. We could worship outside if we wanted to, or we could meet maybe in a school building somewhere. If we wanted to rent a facility somewhere, we could worship there, or we could worship in a beautiful building like this. Uh, which we've chosen to do so by expediency and human judgment. We've been given the command to baptize. That's the last thing the Lord said, but he didn't say where. It just has to be water. It could be a stream. It could be a coal creek. It could be a lake. It could be a swimming pool. It could be an ocean or a baptistry. What matters is that there's water there. The Lord didn't say where. We've been given the command, for example, to take partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, someone says, well, where in the world is the authority for these emblems that we have? Well, we need to understand that when God gave a command to partake of the Lord's Supper, that made it of necessity that there be some kind of container. I love how we do it here now, you know. I'm glad we went back to giving like that, though. I think that's an important lesson. I think that's why the elders use great wisdom and making sure that we pass the collection around so that, you know, we teach others and our children about our giving on the first day of the week. But I love how we take those emblems, you know. We don't have to wait for those trays to clank and somebody to drop it and make a big old racket. Or, you know, we have to worry about somebody coming here early and making sure the juice is all in those little cups. That was a pain, wasn't it? I did that a few times myself, you know. But, you know, it's expediency, you know. We come in and grab our emblems and whoever... Uh, you know, conducts the Lord's Supper, asks if we've got our emblems and somebody passes them out. You know, you wouldn't get to lunch. But 15 minutes later, if we did it the old Have you ever thought about that? You wouldn't, get to, you, you, you wouldn't get to lunch for 15 more minutes if we did it the old way. Just think about that. You know, that's not why we do it, you know. But uh, it does make something. We've learned a lot of things since the pandemic, hadn't we? A lot of things since the pandemic. Who would have ever thought, you know, that, I know some churches still do it like we did, but I love how we have our Bible classes on Sunday night here. That was a decision the elders made, and look how it's worked out. You think we'd have this many people here on a Sunday night if we just had our normal service? I'd like to think so, but I'd probably not, right? This has just worked out so well, and uh, uh, that's a matter of judgment. Uh, we're commanded to give on the first day of the week. That's why it's right to have those baskets, the containers that we have uh, to pass by uh, and collect uh, our giving. We could use a box or a hat. doesn't tell us what to use. So when God gives a command, inherent within that command is whatever items of expediency or judgment is necessary to carry about those particular commands. I'm convinced this microphone is authorized because the Bible commands us to preach and teach, right? And this simply uh, is a way that we go about doing that. The public address system aids us in the preaching. Without it, many people uh, could not hear. Well, very quickly, time's getting away from us. How does this apply to us today? What does this mean for me today? I want you to get this point. We need to realize God will only accept what's authorized. Doesn't matter what's popular. Doesn't matter what the majority wants. It doesn't matter what appeases other people. God's only going to accept what is authorized. That's always been the case from the Old Testament all the way down through the New Testament. And when anything is not authorized in the Bible by approved example, by implication, by direct statement, by expediency, then we have no right whatsoever to engage in that particular activity or doctrine. Think about some practical things that bring this home. Uh, I don't say this in a derogatory way, but, you know, the Catholic Church, they count beads in their worship. What's wrong with counting beads in worship? The Bible doesn't say don't count beads. Well, it's wrong because it's not authorized. 
Uh, what would be wrong with us burning incense down front in our worship service? The Bible nowhere says, you know, don't burn incense as a part of your worship. What's wrong with that? Well, it's not authorized. You know, why can't we offer animal sacrifices and partake of it like the priest did in the Old Testament? Uh, you can't find anywhere in the New Testament where it says you shall not offer animal sacrifices. Why can't we do it? Well, it's because it's not authorized. And I wonder if it might not be, you know, what if I have this opinion uh, myself? It might be more convenient just to meet on Thursday night and let's partake of the Lord's Supper on Thursday night. Let's focus all of our attention on Thursday night on the Lord's Supper and make it more, so much more meaningful. We could focus all of our attention on that. What's wrong with that? Well, I may like it. Everybody else may like it. But we can't do that for one reason. That's because it's not authorized in God's book, the Bible. You know, and that bread sometimes. Sometimes it's like eating cardboard, isn't it? You know, it can be. Uh, why couldn't we just have butter, beans, and iced tea for the Lord's Supper? Now, if I was going to make a change like that, I'd put in Nestle's Crunch. I love Nestle's Crunch, you know. Put, put that in there. I'd love to break some of that, you know. Why can't we do that? Why can't we add something that would be nutritional like that in the Lord's Supper? Uh, nowhere says, you know, you can't have those items in the Lord's Supper. The reason it's wrong is because it's nowhere authorized. And I don't know anywhere or anybody how they could prefer instrumental music over the worship we have here. When you have the singing here that's so enthusiastic and so alive, why would it be wrong to bring a piano into this church building and use it to worship God? I challenge anybody to go to the New Testament and find one verse that says you shall not play a piano. Well, if it doesn't say it, what's wrong with it? It's wrong because it's not authorized anywhere in the New Testament. In fact, nine different times the New Testament says to sing. Never once does it say to play or to make music. And we're going to have a whole lesson dealing with some of these principles. And uh, I hope you'll think about that as we uh, get to these so-called five items of worship that we engage in corporately. This whole class has been about corporate worship. And I, don't want it, I didn't want it just to focus on five acts of corporate worship. I wanted to begin, like I did, talking about worship and the meaning of worship and why worship is important. And then we needed to talk about, I think, authorization, how the Bible authorizes itself. And this is something that our young people really need to get. They need to be taught these principles of how the Bible authorizes itself. As I said before, in many, many areas, young people are not being brought up, uh, being taught about the distinctive nature of the church. Uh, it's just simply a generic, superficial type of Christianity. You know, do your own thing, do it your own way. But we need to have a greater respect for Bible authority. We need to have the attitude that we're going to speak where the Bible speaks, that we're going to be silent where the Bible is silent, that we're not going to do more than the Word of God, and we're not going to do less than the Word of God. And we need to determine to put away our personal preferences, you know, our own opinions, our own desires, and simply make up our minds that we're going to be guided by what God's inspired Word says in our lives and doctrine and practice. What's Colossians 3.17 says? Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Whatever you teach, whatever you practice, you do it by the authority of God. And that's why this is so very important. Now, the average religious person out there would probably be stunned by some of the things that we've talked about tonight. And that's why when we go out and talk to our neighbors and friends... We've got to be patient. We've got to be kind and understanding, but we don't need to withhold the truth from them as well. And whenever we have an opportunity, we can very kindly and gently uh, teach them uh, about some things that they may never have thought about before. The average religious person out there in the world has never asked themselves the question, why am I what I am religiously? 
They've never asked themselves that question. Well, that's how my grandparents were or my parents were. They've never really gone to the Bible and they've never investigated what they believe and why they believe it. But we need to be people of strong convictions and that's the reason uh, we're having these particular lessons. All right, any questions or comments that you've got? Anything y'all want to add? Well, I've got about two or three minutes, so if y'all, y'all got any comments? Anything y'all want to ask? Anything that's unclear? this when people ask us questions about these kinds of things in the past some people have been very ugly and rude about that why would you even ask such a question like that very idea we need to invite questions don't we and when somebody has questions we need to invite them to investigate and to learn and not just cut people short when a young person for example has a question about something, we need to be able to answer those questions in a very kind uh, and truthful way and not just cut them off as if, you know, what businesses, you know, do you have of asking that kind of question? So let's always be open and try to uh, talk to people in a way that they'll listen and a way that they'll respond. All right. Thank you all very much. I appreciate it. Uh, I guess we're dismissed. Next week, hopefully the Lord's Supper. We won't partake of it, though, okay? Although there might not be nothing wrong with it.